Hello, and welcome back to Office Hours Career Paths for PhDs. My name is Jasmine, and we are back with another episode. Again, this is a series where we speak to different people with doctorates, understanding how, oh, crap, I always mess it up. I'm going to do this one more time. I, I Okay, give me one second. Hold on. <laughs> okay, let's see here. I may just have to just start cold without the video. Hey, my name is Jasmine and welcome back to Office Hours Career Paths for PhDs. This is a series for people with doctorates who want to explore all of their career options, even if they're outside of the academy. I'm here to ask all of your burning questions to scholars who are brave enough to take the leap. Before we get started, make sure you hit the subscribe button. And if you feel led, share this with a colleague or a friend who could use it. I am so excited today to introduce Dr. Lara Ayad. And she received her PhD in art and architecture from Boston University. And she is currently a communications and research consultant. I'm gonna bring her to the stage. Hello, how are you? Hi, Jasmine, I'm good, how are you? Wonderful, thank you so much for joining me tonight. I am excited to speak with you as, as I'm always excited to speak with our guests, but you have such a unique story that I can't wait to get into. So we like to do what's called the journey into the wild. And so I wanna just kinda <laughs> talk about just your journey. So tell me when you were starting your doctoral program, what did you want to do with it once you graduated? Yeah, um, I had a very clear vision of what I wanted to do with my PhD, which was to go on the tenure track, become a college professor, teach art history classes. Um, and I started off when I actually when I was an undergrad, I started my first year or so as an English major because I really loved writing. And I started taking undergraduate courses in art history like history of pre-modern South Asia and Africa and ancient Egypt and China and all these things. And because of my interest in so many other cultures and learning about other cultures, I think I, that really propelled me to want to switch my major and be, and go into art history. And actually, I went to George Mason University. So I was like right around the DC area, which, which is great. So, um, so that's kind of how, that's kind of how it started. Okay. Now, once you started your doctoral program, what did you see as the, when was the moment where you had the shift in terms of not necessarily wanting to go into the tenure track? Where did that, that happen? Yeah. Well, um, the shift happened after I got onto the tenure track. So, okay. so this is kind of interesting. Like, this is an interesting question that you asked Jasmine, because when I, I'll back up a little bit, like when I see other PhDs and former academics talk about leaving and read Quitlet and all this stuff, usually more often than not, these folks um, were, were trying to get a job on the tenure track, but mm -hmm. were stuck adjuncting or being yeah. visiting assistant professors and, you know, of course, like this is the academic job market is just absolutely ridiculous yeah. through the amount of PhDs yeah. that that come out in the United States in particular. Mm -hmm. um, and then they write about leaving and then finding a job in industry. But for me, um, <laughs> you talk about the journey into the wild and I'll get to that in a second. But for me, I got I finished my PhD in 2018 and I got a, a tenure track job 
at Skidmore College in upstate New York. So it's a small liberal arts college, you know, teaching courses on the history of African art, the history of art in the Middle East, mostly a lot of, of work on modern art outside of what we tend to call the West. So I was doing that, doing my research, administrative work, all of the things and the obligations that come with going into tenure track. Mm-hmm. And in terms of where I felt like there was a shift, um, this is kind of serendipity because about a year into starting my tenure track job, I got this random email from a producer at a PBS TV affiliate in upstate New York. His name's Matt Rogowitz. He's really great. He's a producer of a program called House for Arts. Mm-hmm. Or aha. And, um, and you can look it up, actually. If you go on my LinkedIn, like I have like links to some of the work that I used to do on aha. And, and it's, it's an awesome, awesome program. Um, and I got this random email saying, would you like to host our show on arts and culture? And I'm thinking to myself, who gets an email like this? Like, that's right. so, that's so kind of out of the blue. Yeah. So um, push comes to shove. Long story short, I accept the invitation. I go check out the studio. It's great. Working with Matt is awesome. And, you know, what started off as a job kind of being in front of a teleprompter and the camera and being the face of the show it very organically and very quickly became, I'm helping edit the show script. I'm helping bring talent onto the show. I'm getting involved, helping to brainstorm episode themes. I'm working with the executive producer to see like, if we can make a short streaming segment and like, it just kind of like started um, snowballing into these yeah. things in the best way possible. And it was that part-time job that I wasn't anticipating. I thought it would just be like kind of a fun thing to do, mm-hmm. but that part-time job became, um, I'm sorry if it's a little bit noisy, but that part-time job, I think planted a seed. And I started realizing I liked my part-time job more than my full-time job. Wow. Like, I mean, and it, it, you know, I want to be very careful and very clear here that like the, the department that I was working with at Skidmore was really great. They were super supportive very clear about their expectations of what I should do to get my contract renewed and get my tenure. But it's something within me was just like, man, I really love like the pace of this work at PBS. I move faster. I work with a team. I'm, you know, we're, I'm getting to wear all these different hats. Mm-hmm. And, uh, it just, I, you know, I think it was a, it was a mix of like soul searching and kind of more conventional conscious research that made me think, okay, you know what? I need to make some kind of a career change. Yeah. And there are so many big moments that you talk about. One, you know, obviously landing the tenure track job in a department that you really enjoy, teaching classes that you love to teach, but then also having an opportunity to bring that PhD skill set and that deep, deep knowledge of your subject matter into industry work. So kind of tell me, what did it feel like that that first day on set when you are kind of blending, you know, academia and industry. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, This is really interesting because part of the reason that Matt, the producer reached out to me originally was because he was looking for college professors who were teaching in the arts, art history, something along those lines. And the only reason he thought to do that is because his boss, the executive producer at the station, had a brother who was a history professor. And so his name was Joseph. And so Joseph knew like, oh, 
college professors are actually pretty good at like presenting about things and making them digestible for a general audience. So that's the reason that Matt even reached out to me. And I bring this up because um, I really, and I, I really think that this is, this is going to sound like I'm tooting my own horn, but I really believe this. I really do think that my PhD, the skills I gained with getting the PhD and with being on a tenure track job for those first couple of years was such a great way to get me to figure out like, how do I take sometimes obscure subjects that have to do with a part of the world most Americans are not familiar with and make them really interesting to a room full of distracted and anxious 19 year olds. Like, how do you do that? <laughs> and so the skill set it takes to, to achieve those goals and to even develop my teaching on the one hand was a great thing that I got to bring into my work as a host. And also too, um, even just doing research on our guests, you know, we started developing our interview segments in the studio so that I would research the guests ahead of time. I'd find who would be a good potential guest to bring on. And Matt would sometimes find people as well. And I'd have like pre-interview kind of calls with them. So a little bit, you know, and I know Jasmine, you do a little bit of work on like focus groups and qualitative mm -hmm. research and interviews. Very much along those lines, I would kind of help develop the story of our guests. You know, it could be anything from... Uh, a musical artist, to a poet, to an, an administrator for a science museum, uh, to a college professor. We had all sorts of people come on as guests. And I found ways on the show to like do research on them, have conversations with them ahead of time and find out what's the best way to tell a story about this person and the impact that they have in their community. And yeah, I, I absolutely think that my my background, my academic background and the work I was doing at Skidmore contributed to that. Now, tell me about the moment when you decided to leave the tenure track. What was that like for you? Yeah, um, I wouldn't say it was one moment. Okay. <laughs> I would say, I would say it was a buildup of little experiences. Um, and when I say little experiences, it's not to say that I... Um, it's not to say that they're not significant, but it's to say like they were like small happenings that would build up. So I'll give you an example. Mm -hmm. um, I recall, and this was like around the time that the pandemic was taking place. Okay. It was just unfolding. It was around what well, that was March of 2020. So around that time, I was forced to teach online, which was very hard. The students yeah. were understandably pretty low energy, not very enthusiastic. That made teaching even harder. Mm -hmm. um, and I found myself, how would I put this? I found myself not only being kind of, um, becoming a little disgruntled with the teaching that the drawbacks would start to outweigh the benefits. Um, and I even kind of noticed that while I was teaching in person before the pandemic arrived too. But also like my research, like I would sit there. I remember one time I was going to start work on my third journal article. And usually when I start a journal article, I start with my primary source, which is the artwork itself. And that's like my favorite part of the research is like starting with the artwork and, you know, analyzing it and understanding both its physical properties as well as its symbolic meanings and the questions that I could ask of that. And I usually get really excited during that phase of the research. 
And I sat down to start my third journal article and looking at the artwork reproduction on the screen and just kind of feeling nothing. Mm. And it's not so much that like, you know, I was doing my PhD on modern Egyptian art and I was writing a lot of my journal articles about that, like the place of modern Egyptian art in Africa and African art history. Mm-hmm. And it's not as if that topic still doesn't motivate me. It does. But there was something about the goal or the process of doing this kind of work for academic publishing and the process of that, that just, it lost its glimmer. It it just totally lost its energy. And I tried to like repeat, okay, let me sit down tomorrow and try this again. Let me sit next week and try this again. It was just the same thing over and over. And so it was like the accumulation of experiences like that, that I think really, um, really started to tell me, you know what, something, something's wrong. Something isn't right here. Now, this next segment is called Nuts and Bolts, where we get into just how you were able to make that transition. So tell me, you have this moment or these series of moments and you realize that, okay, something has to give here. What's your next step after having these series of revelations? Oh my gosh. Um, my, my next steps kind of, it kind of felt like I was taking a step forward, then a step back, then a step to the side and then the other. And I don't, I don't want to draw like at a potentially obnoxious metaphor, but it's more just to say that that literally is what it felt like. It didn't feel linear at all. Um, I think some of the things I did included, and I'm trying to remember here, one of the first things I did was to read some books like Quitlet, basically, about leaving academia. So like Chris Catterin's Leaving Academia, um, the the book called What Are You, What Are You, So What Are You Going to Do With That? That's like one of the, kind of the early veterans uh, in terms of books about leaving academia. So I started with that. I kind of was like doing some of the, the things they advised to do, including sort of exploring what are my values? Like, mm. what is it that I want my everyday life to actually look like? And I wrote in a journal about this. So that's one of the things, one of the steps I took. Another step that I took was then starting to reach out to other people that have left academia or even other people that I know really well that just work in industry on some level or didn't do the tenure track. I just like call them on the phone or I'd reach out to them on LinkedIn and I would just have an informational interview. And that's one of the pieces of advice I think that Chris Catterin gives in his book is, you know, hold these informational interviews. So that was really helpful. And it made me feel you know, at, at when people were still not seeing each other in person during the pandemic, like this was a really important way to feel connected to other people and feel like I still have some type of at least a virtual social life. Right. Um, but they also gave me extremely helpful advice and and acted in some ways sort of like a preliminary support group in a way. Yeah, I think it's interesting. So I defended my dissertation April 24th, 2020. So I feel like there were lots of, you know, coming to Jesus moments during the pandemic where we're just trying to figure out, okay, like, so what are we doing? Not sure what I want to do. So I think that that was definitely a pivotal moment for a lot of people. So once you have these conversations from, you know, just your network and also reaching out on LinkedIn, what, what were your next steps after that? Yeah, my next steps after that, and I, and some of these things overlap, by the way, like I was reaching out cold to people on LinkedIn while I was 
trying to develop my resume and rewrite it and then apply for jobs. And frankly, like many of the jobs I applied for at this early stage were jobs like I was not qualified for because in part I wasn't really, um, I didn't, I didn't really have a sense yet of where I fit into the larger picture of say, uh, I don't know, um, uh, marketing and media development for HBO or something like that. You know, like I was not, I wasn't really yet like having a fully grounded, realistic sense of where I fit into that. Um, but it was also great practice. And I even worked with a couple of career coaches and, up like quite a bit of money sometimes for developing my resume or having like a kind of like brainstorm talk with a career coach, including somebody who helps people transition um, to another career or another industry. Um, and, and a lot, frankly, um, and this is going to, this is going to be the part of our conversation too, where like some of the more kind of personal and emotional aspects of this come out. Um, I, I was also seeing a, an analyst virtually. She was based in Brooklyn and I was in upstate New York and we had our weekly therapy sessions and that was a godsend. And I still actually am, am, am seeing her every week, every Wednesday. Um, and I think this is, I say this because I really think it's important that besides friends and family, um, having a therapist or having an, an analyst is a really helpful support source. And um, that and just like really kind of checking in with myself and doing that soul searching uh, every now and then. Uh, these were these were really important steps that I had to take in the process. And and you know, frankly, sometimes just like crying in a corner. <laughs> you know, sometimes I mean, sometimes it just got Jasmine. Sometimes it got so bad yeah. to where I was getting sick almost every week, and I never get sick. Like, like I have the I have such a knock on what I have such a great immune system, but like when things were really tough and I was stuck in my apartment in New York and it was winter time and it's the Albany area, it's super cold, man, like those were, those were tough times. Yeah. And I'm happy that you felt comfortable sharing that in this space, because those are the conversations that are really important when you look on LinkedIn. I think we're starting to see more transparency in people's experiences, but Think back to a couple of years ago, everyone's like, oh, I defended my dissertation. I'm now a senior UX researcher at Google. And it's like, wait, what? It, it always <laughs> felt very linear when for a lot of people, the path isn't linear. It's messy. It's chaotic. There are all types of feelings. Um, I'm grateful. I was I was doing therapy consistently while I was in my program. So mine was every Friday at two o'clock. I met with Olivia and she helped me to kind of pull it all together. But that was a practice that I had to revisit, you know, at the height of the pandemic, because there were just so many moving parts internally and externally that, you know, you need that extra support. And I also found it helpful to even just have build community or continue building community with the people that I went to school with, because they understood that no one understands what the PhD process is like unless you've done it. And yep. it helps to have people to just talk to about your experiences. So even just building on the community, if you had any during your program is also helpful. Now, how you you have all of these experiences, you're working with your therapist, you talk to career coaches. When was the big aha moment in terms of the path that you were going to pursue or was it an aha moment? Yeah, that's a great question. 
I, I don't know that I had one aha moment. Um, I think in part because, because of that part-time job that I had at the PBS affiliate station at WMHT. So that's the name of the PBS affiliate because of my part-time work there. I think it already gave me structure for thinking, Oh, okay. If I'm doing a lot of production and pre-production work on the show and I'm enjoying this, well then it must be that I want to get into something along those lines as an official career path. Right. So it wasn't really one aha moment, I think it started to build up over time. And I will also just say like one of the other things I would kind of do on the side to support myself, and this is answering your, your current question is I would, I would start screenwriting. Like I would just like start practicing, like writing scenes and episodes for a series. And, and, you know, I got through like one or two drafts of one or two specific scenes and I would write, you know, a kind of, um, I would write a kind of synopsis of the different characters and the tone I'm going for and a tagline and a logline, all these things. And I was, I was learning from other active experienced screenwriters, you know, virtually and on LinkedIn, on Facebook groups and stuff like that. Like as I was doing this, this was a, I mean, this has got to be like a year and a half to two year long process, wow. right? Wow. Just kind of like reshifting and recalibrating the way that I'm seeing the world. And I think something like say the screenwriting, okay, yeah, it's professionally relevant because I'm thinking about going into production and this media-based storytelling, but it's also a creative process, right? So I think I think getting involved in some type of creative project, and that can be anything. It could be writing some fiction. It could be cooking an awesome meal. It could be, you know, planting a garden. It could be writing a song or whatever that may be. You know, even if it doesn't necessarily have anything to do with your career path in any way, it's, it's important to um, have that space where you can push yourself out of your comfort zone and make mistakes without the consequences being so dire, if that makes any sense. It does. Now, I'll jump in quickly. Talk to me about the identity crisis. A lot of people we've had... <laughs> We've had this conversation with our past guests where they talk about, and Dr. Rebecca Constantini, she did a great job of talking about her scholarly identity versus her industry identity. Tell me about the shift in identity as you're going through this process. Yeah. I don't even know necessarily that I fully shifted either quite yet or if I ever will, um, because I guess, I guess, okay, so let me, let me, let me clarify. I think to a certain extent, like I've finally climbed out of the hole of I am an academic. Okay. But I, but I I do still, and with pride, I do still say I am an art historian. Okay. Because I think that my training and my perspective, like in my original field in art history, is so valuable and so translatable and applicable to so many different arenas, whether that's like learning what motivates people in a, a, frankly, a largely visual world, you know, art historians are specifically trained to understand 
what is this thing? What does it look like? Why does it look the way it does? What is it, was its meaning when it was made? Who made it and why? And how does its meaning change over time? I mean, gosh, with all of our Instagram and all of our social media and, and advertisements everywhere and everything being so visual, that's a really key skill to have. I mean, you're really kind of understanding people and society on a fundamental level. Um, and it's not to say that you need an art history PhD in order to do some of those things, but it's more just to say that like with the training I had, I was especially, um, adept and, and, um, practiced a lot at, at doing these kinds of things and understanding culture in that way. So I don't know that I've eschewed, uh, my, some of that traditional identity as an art historian, but I would say now some of the new identity, I guess, that I'm exploring is, I don't know if I can put a name on it, but it's a new identity that is perhaps uh, a little more scrappy. Okay. And so one in which, and I guess this has to do with values, like one in which I'm realizing like, oh, I really like my, the freedom and flexibility of my time and my schedule. Yes. And really, and I really also a big part of identity is also like, how are you developing your life depending on where you live? Mm. Right. So what's come with now leaving the tenure track is geographic autonomy. Yes. Like how I get to choose where I live. And granted, I came to Los Angeles originally for the purpose of building a career in entertainment, but also I now am realizing after I moved here, I realized like, oh, I can live in a city where I can like go to the beach and then go for a hike and then go skiing like within the same day and then go to like a Michelin star restaurant if I wanted to. Like if I, I obviously for it, but <laughs> that'll, that'll come later. But it's, it's all just to say that um, I haven't really like pinned down what my new identity is yet. And I'm not sure that, I'm not sure that identities um, stay fixed or stay frozen for very long. Um, But I think I've gotten clarity on who I am to a certain extent. Sorry about that. No, and I think it's so interesting because having this this idea of geographic autonomy Mm. and also freedom in your schedule. So what is your life? What does your life look like now Mm -hmm. um, in your your current work? Yeah. Yeah. Well, the work that I'm doing right now, I'm, I'm doing some freelance um, support work and consulting for interior design firm that's located in Florida and full disclosure. Part of the reason I was able to get this work doing data entry, helping, you know, designers develop their, their specifications for procurement. So basically like helping them organize and categorize their finishes, furniture, and all of that. I've also helped them develop you know, client facing pitch decks and (laughs) very much at like the turn of a dime. And, um, my mother is an interior designer at the company. My uncle owns the company. And, you know, when I was still early on in this process and my resumes weren't getting any bites and I was applying for jobs, you know, me and my family were just kind of sitting there like, well, why don't you do this in the meantime? Okay. Help out the design company. Um, while you're figuring things out. And, you know, like I, I want to be fully transparent and share that because, you know, I think I started out in this process thinking, oh, I'm going to apply for jobs cold, 
to these strangers that they're going to look at my resume and they're going to get a great job and I'm going to move up the ladder. And like, it was going to be this really neat and clean sort of linear path, but sometimes it just doesn't work out that way. Yeah. And I want to share that. Um, and I know I'm, I'm going off on a little bit of a tangent, no, go ahead. Go ahead. Um, but I think that sometimes you need to find the help where you can right? Um, sometimes you need to recruit your friends and family to like, give you that support in some way or another, as you're getting your footing. Yeah, right. So I don't know if that's that we can kind of come back to your question, too. If no, you- no, I think that's great. And I think it's also important to be open to opportunities so that when they come along, you can recognize it as an opportunity and not just something to you know, pass the time. So being intentional about being able to evaluate opportunities. What was your process like kind of because so you, if I'm understanding you correctly, you went from tenure track and you were working part time to mm-hmm. consulting work. So what was that that shift like for you? Yeah. Um, well, you know, I had to I had to stop working on my part time job at PBS because I was relocating. Right. I mean, they were based in upstate New York and Troy. Um, and along after leaving Skidmore, I was then at WMHT. I continued my work at WMHT uh, for about I want to say. It was roughly for like a, yet another year. Um, and something to keep in mind too, is like, while I was working at Skidmore in my tenure track role, I was also hosting the show at PBS. So it was a really busy schedule. Like and I was serving on the board of directors for the college art association. So it was like, it was pretty bananas. Um, so, so in a way it was like, there was kind of a hard stop to my part-time gig. And then when I moved to Los Angeles, this was April of 2022, Later in the summer in August, I then hopped on to doing these this freelance contract work for um, IDDI or ID and Design in Florida. Okay. Um, and so, and in terms of like what my everyday looks like, that was the question you yeah. asked. Um, I really, I mean, it kind of it it kind of goes and fits and starts. Like sometimes I'll get a message from a designer, like last minute, be like, "Okay, we really need help with this. Can you help with this?" I'm like, uh, "I can start it in two days, and I can do this, or yes, I can hop on this right now." And I've worked on projects that are like you know really massive, and they took like a month and a half to two months to do to like much smaller scale ones that will take barely a week. Um, but I do, I will just say like, I do fill my other time with going to networking events, going and meeting with my friends, getting outdoors, going hiking, um, you know, cooking and doing the kind of like the normal everyday things as well. And I think that's, I think that's really important to like cultivate other interests and other aspects of your life in the midst of making a transition like this. Yeah. And that I want to underscore if I had you know, a flashing red light for what you just said, that would be, it's so important because what I've noticed is that within academia, it's easy to just throw yourself into it where you are living, breathing, teaching, you are always on campus, you're doing office hours, you're always writing. And so being able to create a life for yourself outside of the classroom and outside of the institution of academia is so important because well, one, it's healthy. Life is meant to be lived and it's important that you're able to really take advantage of all the experiences that you can have now that you're on the other side of the PhD. Yeah. I, when I graduated, I felt like I would be starting all over again, just 
okay, so I'll get a job in academia and then I have to start at the bottom of the totem pole and then work like crazy to get to where I want to go. And just even that perception of it, um, it was it was a bit scary. It was a bit exhausting. I was just kind of mentally over it. So that yeah. helped me to create a separation of myself from the work that I did so that no matter what happens with my work, I know who I am. I know what I need to be healthy. We also talked about earlier, you know, creating your own definition of success. And that's not just about how much money you make. It's not just about your career path. I know for me, my definition of, of success is having autonomy in my day being able to go sit on my porch when I want to and just kind of rest and then, you know, wave to my neighbors. That's for me. That's my definition of success because that's what makes me happy. Mm -hmm. Um, So I'd love to learn more about the types of projects you're taking on. So if you could just kind of just high level, tell, tell me about either a communication or research project that you've felt like you had a major impact on. Mm, Okay. Um, Well, actually, right now, I'm going to be starting a marketing campaign for a film production. This is a short independent film. It's called The Sanctuary. And um, I just had a a conversation with the producer over the past two days. So um, I'm building up a a campaign for that. It's supposed to be like a little bit hush-hush before I send out all of these emails. But the, the film is really fantastic. And just in sum, it's about... Um, two men who used to be childhood friends and are trying to grapple with um, a history of, of family abuse and have run into cahoots with the law. And so it kind of reaches this climax. It's a 12 minute film. And um, this is really great. Actually, the producer who's on the film is somebody that I made a connection with when I was still in New York and she's in Los Angeles. Like I made a connection with her though I mean, gosh, I want to say maybe almost two years ago. And um, her name's Karen K. Ross. And she's just she's such a fantastic person and so genuine and and so wise. And um, and and she was somebody that I kept in touch with. So after getting here, you know, after a while, it was like she was like, would you like to help me with this marketing campaign? I'm like, sure. You know, like. You know, so um, so I am getting started with that. And then I would say another big piece of the communications work that I've had a big impact on is actually creating that client facing pitch deck for IDDI for ID and design. Um, It was it was sort of like a last minute effort. Um, We had to get this thing done and they were enlisting some other people to hop on this. And I was like, okay, I can do this within 48 hours. It was it was a lot of work, but everybody was really great. And the head of studios was like super helpful. But I went and made this this pitch deck with beautiful images and designs that were provided to me. And I made the deck and we, we won the sale to the client and, uh, and they bought the project from the design firm, which is, which is awesome. So, so I would say those are some of the things I'm doing. And then in terms of like, kind of, uh, uh, exercising my muscles for communications on a daily smaller level is keeping up on my LinkedIn, um, keeping in touch with my contacts and also like going to um, an industry and entertainment mixers that are taking place every now and then. And I like to go show my face, meet new people, um, talk to the recruiters. And by the way, this is actually like a little piece of advice that I just want to fit in now. Like 
if there is a job fair or a, a mixer or a networking event of any kind, um, especially if like a company that might be hiring is hosting it, bring a paper resume. It will make you stand out. Okay. And effort that you put into that, like have the company's name at the top. If there's a particular company that you really like want to work for, you really like bring a paper resume. Like I went to one uh, industry mixer recently and brought a paper resume. And the recruiter told me after he's like, nobody else did something like that, but you went and you brought this thing, you introduced yourself. You shared a bit about like what skills could help us solve particular problems that we're actually dealing with. He's like, and he's like, and I wanted to schedule a phone call with you right away. Okay. So yeah. So I would say rather than send resumes and cover letters cold into the black hole of the internet for like years and years and just never hear anything back. Yeah. I just personally think like face-to-face interactions with people they just they they yield a lot more fruit, even if you don't get that job right away, or even if nothing has come into fruition just yet, you just get a lot more traction with that type of work. Right. And I'm happy that you brought that up. So even thinking about some of the shifts that you had to make from CV to resume, what does that look like for you building out a resume with all of this? Well, you did have hands-on experience, but how did you translate that academic work into a resume? Oh my gosh, Jasmine, it took so many iterations and so many uh, drastic recalibrations of of attitude Mm. to get the CV into the resume that I have today, for instance. I mean, I must have overhauled this thing seven or eight times. And that's not counting all the revisions I did in between the overhauls, right? (laughs) I mean, this is, this is, it takes a long time. And granted, you know, I was also trying to transition from academia into entertainment. And that is such a different industry in terms of, like, it's not like, I, I think if you were to try to translate a resume or a CV from uh, or a CV, excuse me, f- into a resume for say, like a college administration uh, role. Mm-hmm. I don't think that the jump would be quite so drastic, but because I was trying to go into such a drastically different industry, media entertainment, um, I really had to 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 translate things. Um, working with career coaches was helpful for sure, especially in terms of reformatting the physical resume. But I would say. Um, and this is something I think that other uh, other uh, guests on on your program have have also advised, which is look at the job ads and see what kind of language they use and yeah. use that language in the resume, mm-hmm. which is one thing to understand in theory. But like one of the big challenges of doing that is like even understanding their language, right? Like what are they insinuating is the problem they need solved by saying uh, must be able to analyze or evaluate K- you know, KPIs, key performance indicators. Like what does that even mean, right? Yeah. <laughs> so, so I'll give you, actually, I'll give you a helpful example of like how I did this. So um, one of the things I did is rather than talk about um, re- kind of attracting students to sign up for an art history major during these like 
accepted students like fairs that we would have at Skidmore. So we'd have like these fairs where accepted students would come and they'd kind of like shop around and look at the different departments and see what they want to major in. And I would be there along with a student volunteer to like, that's part of my administrative work to like get students to sign up for the major. I translated that in my resume to I'm literally recruiting talent. Mm. I'm in. Okay. talent for the department, because that is actually what you're doing. Like every student that is an art history major or an art history minor and is putting out research papers, work on exhibitions at the campus gallery, whatever that may be, that is work being produced by talent in the department. Um, And you are basically their supervisor or their manager if they're the ones taking your classes or you are their mentor, or perhaps they're doing an independent study with you, you are essentially like their manager or their boss in a way, and you're recruiting talent. Um, Another way that I would talk about this is um, rather than talk about uh, writing a journal article, I would talk about writing white papers, right? Okay. Uh, Just those, those, those terms and phrases that a white paper, boom, like any kind of management consulting firm, any type of firm that's in like, you know, legal affairs, anything like that, uh, government, they're all going to understand white paper, right? But if you see a journal article or, you know, a a monograph, like they're really good at, but you're really, you're writing white papers, right? But I could, I could give so many more examples and actually, um, if, if anybody listening is interested in more examples of how I've translated aspects of my CV or my academic work into what I have now on my resume, they're always welcome to reach out to me on LinkedIn and I'm happy to share. Awesome. And yeah. we'll make sure that we include your LinkedIn um, link in our description so that way our viewers can click on it. And we're also now on all these different podcast platforms. So we'll make sure it's in the episode description for our new our new listeners. Now, with all of this experience that you have, what's what's next for you? Hmm. What's next for me? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Sometimes I kind of feel like... Um, you know, you've got, you've got your will and you've got your ego in the very big sense that like it wants what it wants and it drives towards something and that's good. But mm-hmm. sometimes the universe has its own rules and its own things that it does. And I say this to um, say that, you know, you can't necessarily, you can't control your circumstances. For instance, you can't control if you've been applying to jobs and you're just yeah. not hearing back from recruiters there's nothing really that you can do about that, right? Yeah. You can take off all the boxes, like do the informational interviews, talk to recruiters, mm-hmm. uh, revamp your CV into a resume, all these things. But sometimes you still won't get what you want, right? I think that to your point earlier, Jasmine, about like seizing opportunities, right? Even things that are a little bit unexpected, that is one great way to just explore what it is you even want to do. And I would say in terms of like, what's next for me, I can't say for sure, but I do know that, you know, whether I'm working on this like film production marketing campaign or working uh, with the design firm in Florida or whatever that may be, um, I know that whatever skills I develop will be very useful towards one of my longer term goals is like, I do want to 
work for an organization or do some type of advocacy work that advocates for the arts and the value of the arts in people's lives. Right. And that's something that's extremely important to me. And that's also too, like where my background as an art historian is really playing a role here. Like at its fundamental level at the base is this really strong belief that, um, that arts and artistic expression are, are really like a key part of the human experience. Mm-hmm. And, you know, our country is witnessing uh, an incredibly drastic cut in funds at schools and programs and universities in arts programming and, you know, in getting young people and students or people of any age to create and to make art, to experience art. And I think that this is, I think that this is going to have and is already having, um, really detrimental effects for society. Now, thinking about all of your experience and where you were, let's say three years ago in our final segment called Mentorship Moments, mm-hmm. if you could go back and give yourself a piece of advice when you were on the tenure track asking more, what advice would you give yourself? Sure. Yeah. Um, if I was to go back and see myself at that moment where I was really having like very palpable, very obvious doubts about staying in academia and wanting to go into a new career, the advice that I would, I would give at least two pieces of advice. One is build a support group, which is a little different than building a network. Um, So a network is like, networking is kind of like the the term that people think about and they kind of like cringe and they're like oh I gotta go and like talk about my skills with some stranger and impress them and like this feels so fake it mm-hmm. networking is not supposed to be like that and mm-hmm. it is often not like that mm-hmm. but it's different in the sense that uh, you are trying to meet people to figure out how can I solve a problem for you essentially, right? Like you're getting to know each other as human beings, but you're figuring out how can I solve a problem for you? That's networking. My advice would be that while you're networking, build a support group, which is like friends, family, uh, even like mentors, like people who could be literally across the world or across the country who understand what it's like maybe to leave academia and go into industry or understand what it's like to, you know, I don't know, in my case, like I have an Egyptian immigrant family and I'm an Arab American and, you know, somebody else who kind of understands the experience of what that's like to grow up in the U S as someone, uh, you know, of an, of an Arab or middle Eastern background. Um, it could be anything, anything that is important to you, could even be a shared hobby. Like, do you know somebody who's on your Frisbee team that you really yeah. enjoy hanging out with? That person can be part of your support group, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and to your point earlier, Jasmine, like the importance of having a life and an identity outside of academia, like doing like these other leisure activities, like developing other interests, trying something out, go take a dance class, like go for a hike or go try a new recipe or whatever that may be you know, develop those things. It doesn't all have to be just like digging around urgently for that new career path. Like you got to cultivate other aspects of your life at the same time. And I think the building a support group is a part of that. My second piece of advice would be, and this, and this advice might ruffle some feathers because I, yeah, it may ruffle some feathers, but I would say start humble because you may have a vision in your mind of like 
that big gleaming dream job that you want when you leave academia and like, I'm going to get an entry level job in this dream career path. And I'm going to move my way up the ladder or whatever. That was certainly like the original vision that I had. Uh Um, And you know, what you're going to realize is that sometimes things just don't work out that way. Mm -hmm. And you've got to figure out, you've got to figure out ways to seize opportunities in situations and from things and people that you wouldn't necessarily have like originally thought of. Right. So I would say start humble, for instance, by like asking friends or family, are you hiring for this? Or do you know somebody who's hiring for this? Even if they are potentially opening up a role or hiring in a field, maybe that's not your first choice. But it's a way for you to, if you were to take that opportunity, it's a way for you to just take that first step because you don't know what's going to happen down the line. And also like, you're still learning about yourself, right? I, for me, I have surprised and shocked myself many times. And the reason I say this advice might ruffle feathers is because, and rightfully so, I hear a lot of academics that former academics that quit and went into industry say, you know, you only made 40,000 or 50 something thousand at your, you know, entry level tenure track job or your VAT position. But really you could be making six figures at a Deloitte. It's like, okay, great. But not everybody is going to be able to get that opportunity for a variety of different reasons. And it's, Yes, I think the skills we gain as PhDs are worth so much money. Like they are so valuable and so applicable to other industries. But sometimes like, I'm not saying don't try to like get a job at a Deloitte or a McKinsey or something like that, but, but also keep yourself open to like starting humble and starting kind of like a little closer to the tree, right? A little closer to like where your origins are and just try something out. It, your first step doesn't have to be your last one. And that's like one of the first pieces of advice actually that another person who also left academia told me like way early on in my search when I was first doing like informational interviews with people, Natalia Bielgic told me like your first step out of this, Lara, does not have to be your last one. And I think that was really excellent advice. Yeah. And you brought up a great point about, you know, not everyone's going to get the job at McKinsey or these, you know, I don't know if it's the big four, the big whatever consulting or that became the big three. (laughs) Right. But the reality is that with that increased pay comes increased pressure, comes increased attention, can come increased stress. So there are a lot of other factors that, you know, it's not just about how much money you make. Now, if you're in it for the money, you know, that's on you. That's fine. But be willing to put up with whatever comes along with that because they're not going to pay you, you know, six figures, which I feel like is like the hundred thousand dollars is like the magical number for a lot of people. But, and I don't know where we got that number from, but that's what we mostly think about when we think about six figures. Yeah. But the, the reality is that do you also want the pressure that comes along with that? Or do you want to give yourself grace to figure out what works for you and then find ways to increase your income in that way? So for those of you that are watching, you know, we we want you to do well. I want you to have a great quality of life and make all the money you want to make. But it's also about having that definition of how you want to work, where you want to work, because like Lars mentioned, that geographical autonomy where you can live 
wherever and you can go to the beach today and then hiking tomorrow just having that that freedom of time that that is you can't put a price on that and that's something that's important um one last question for you do you miss academia at all hmm um i think there are aspects of academia that i miss I don't know if I miss the whole enchilada. Okay. <laughs> so um, I, I, I'm going to be honest and it. This, this might sound kind of bad. I don't miss the teaching to be totally okay. okay. There are aspects of, there were rare moments in teaching where you teach something really new to students where it just blows their minds or they didn't know or, um, or like also on the obverse, like a student will talk about something in class and frame things in a way that you never considered before. And you're like, Oh, that's so, that's so great. Like I never even considered that perspective or that way of framing it um, where they really kind of like open up your perspective or, but I think the thing I miss the most about academia is like the rare, rare moments where I got to, I like ran into another colleague, say at my department or another department. And we're like catching up on our news and I haven't seen them in a while. And then they're like, Oh, I'm working on this article. And da, da, da. And I was like, really? And they're like, you want to go see this thing I have in my office? I'm like, great. Um, and it's interesting because I miss those moments a lot. And it's important to just say, like, those were rare moments mm. when I was tenure track. So it's interesting because I think a lot of people go into, go into a tenure track job expecting to have a lot of those interactions. And I'll just say just for me that, that unfortunately, like, it wasn't at all as common as I would have liked it to be. And so... I miss certain aspects of academic life like that. And like the kind of the fascination and curiosity that people would have with ideas and culture and history and things like that. But you're also going to run into a lot of very intelligent people too, outside of academia, obviously. Um, so there are certain things I miss, but like, I would never, I would never consider going back at least not right now. Okay. Well, this has been a delight. Thank you so much for sharing your experience, your wisdom. I know our audience will definitely appreciate that. Thank you all so much for watching and make sure that you subscribe to our YouTube channel. Y'all have a great day. Thank you so much, Jasmine. Take care.